0: Good afternoon everybody. Peter's gonna figure his mic out over there.
1: Hello. There you go. All right here we go. Second to last. Hey Dave. What's that? Hey Dave. Hey. Welcome to Bible study everybody.
0: The penultimate chapter of Mark. Here we are. Almost done.
1: Yes two more to go today and next week. That's right. Uh Pretty exciting. It is exciting. How are you doing? So, I'm, I'm fired up,
0: Dave. <laughs> All right. Peter is fired up. Uh, uh, sure. I am half conscious. Uh, it's been a long day of work. Uh, but very excited to be uh, jumping into Mark chapter 15. I guess I should start out because uh, my dad did the commentary for uh, Jesus... Uh, before Pilate, uh, this moment uh, where Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. Uh, in my dad's uh, breakdown, he uh, he gives some summary of what was going on. He gives a little background. I think Pontius Pilate's kind of a, a weird figure, because almost at times he seems sympathetic, just because at times he's like, do we really want to put Jesus to death? What if we do something else? As opposed to, uh, you know, the religious leaders who are really pushing for it. But my dad gives a little historical background that Pilate actually had a reputation as quick-tempered, vindictive, savage, uh, capable of theft and endless persecution and needless provocations of the Jews. So he's actually a pretty bad guy. Uh, and he also has this moment. And I'll bring up this moment because uh, for me at least, for me talking, it's going to tie back into what I have to say about Joseph of Arimathea uh, at the end when we talk about Jesus's burial so to kind of bookend the discussion we see that Pilate kind of has a moment of choice here uh, he can see that Jesus is uh, as in my dad's words innocent of any charge worthy of death according to Roman law so he can say no you guys we're not going to crucify this man I can't see any reason to but instead when they push him and they get the crowd, which is a chilling moment, when the crowd fully turns on Jesus, not just turning their back and not caring anymore, but this real uh, bloodthirsty reaction that the that the religious leaders are are uh, bringing up in them. Uh, that Pilate has a moment of conscience where he could either go with what would be right, even under Roman law, or just give in to uh, how he's being pushed, and of course, he gives in. Uh, And part of that is, and this is one thing I wanna talk about, part of that is fulfilling prophecy to a certain degree, but we'll see that what God wants to do, God's going to do, and we just wanna see what our part is in it to a certain degree, and here, Pilate is playing the villain's part because he gives in. Uh, And my dad kind of uh, reminds us here too, uh, that not only is Pilate somebody that's, somebody that's making a decision, but he says there are darker forces at work here. And he quotes N.T. Wright, who writes, here at last, Jesus is confronting the ruler of the world in the person of Pontius Pilate. So almost a face-off again uh, with Satan. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot quench it, though it will look for a while as though it has done just that. With Jesus' death, it will seem that he's failed to a lot of people, but we know how it ends. So it's just this idea of where, you know, we're going to find ourselves in the unstoppable flow of the history of the kingdom. Pilate here takes a role, uh, and in his choice becomes, and we see many Romans who make the right choice, even uh, uh this is a centurion who says this is the son of God. Uh, but uh, here we have Pontius having his moment and making the wrong choice. And it's an interesting uh, place in uh, this narrative for him. So that's that's some ideas uh, about Pilate. When I was reading it, I was seeing some of the stuff that you talked about in your sermon that I don't really want to talk about yet. This comes up in the soldiers that mock Jesus about uh, kind of some of the irony on the ways that they, they mock him. But I'll let you kind of start out that, then I might have some stuff to say. Uh, your next... The, what did you, Any thoughts on uh, this appearance before Pilot?
1: I mean, I just... Uh, I think one of the interesting kind of roles that Pilot plays as a character, and you touched on it, is just that he is kind of the washing of hands type of... Um, Allowing of sin into the world, and he probably was a bad dude. I'm sure he was, um, but also in the way he plays the role in the narrative, he definitely plays the role of the the kind of passive um, washing of hands as like complicit in the evil act, not doing the evil act but not stopping the evil act. And I know that's you know been a lot of point of conversation around that as far as just like when we're dealing with issues of justice and what role do we play in them. There's also kind of a role for complicity that contributes to um, injustice. And so that's an important thing to, to look at, that that's a major role in Jesus Um, crucifixion and so there's different portrayals I know like when you get to John some scholars want to say that John really wants to make Pilate look more sympathetic and things like that because he has a later Roman audience and you even hear see scholars talk about this where you know it would have been embarrassing for the Roman Christians in the early church to read stuff like this about you know, what, what the Romans did at that time. Uh, but it's also important history to understand the complicity that Pilate had in this and, and the role that he played. And so I, I think in a lot of ways, he de, he's deserving of, there's an implied critique for Pilate, I guess. And so that's, that's kind of the role he plays is the Sweden in World War II, just kind of letting things happen. Um, and, and allowing for things to go on, maybe even more aggressively bad than that example. So, and I, and I uh, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, just one of the things to draw out there um, in the dialogue. And then did you, so we have soldiers, oh, and then it's my turn. We'll just move straight into the crucifixion. And we can talk about some interesting ideas around Simon the Sirene. This is one of the more cu- curious, puzzling fixtures. Yeah, it's
0: very interesting.
1: In in the story, there's not. I didn't get a lot. I don't know if you did of answers. You know about um, any kind of symbolic meaning that Simon portrays. There's latter accounts, historical accounts that talk about how you know, most of the time that during a crucifixion, the person who was being crucified would have carried the cross completely on the, you know, on the way to the cross. So Simon the Cyrene, they think probably was there out of total necessity, um, and maybe even just points to the fact that Jesus was really beaten badly and so he wasn't able to carry the cross all the way. So, Simon the Cyrene comes in to help. Any thoughts on that?
0: I mean, that's the way I always read it, was that he, like you said, was just incapable at this point because of the abuse he had taken uh, to to carry it any farther. I mean, we have, it's interesting. You don't quite know what to make of Simon of Cyrene because you don't know how, I don't know, maybe it gives a little more detail in the other Gospels, but exactly what his response was to this duty. Uh, because he's, he's, he's a, in, in Catholicism at least, he's sainted. Uh, I mean, you could see he carried the cross of Christ. Uh, but we also don't know if, because he was just walking by. He wasn't like a disciple that says, like, I will help or something like that. As far as I know, he was a bystander. Uh, But uh, it's just kind of the theme I've been reading is, you know, all these people in the background and their reactions to what's going on. Uh, And here we have Simon, who's actually carrying the cross of Christ. And I don't know. I think symbolically it's wonderful of the person carrying the cross. But uh, narratively, we don't know if he was like, what? What do I have to do? And like, upset about it? And why him? Why this guy that was walking by, too? I mean, that seems weird that they just grabbed a guy out of the crowd. They must have had some criteria of why.
1: They I think would make maybe him do just it? somebody who could carry across, who was less enough? than, um, yeah, lesser than. Well,
0: he is often depicted also as black, right. because uh, Cyrene, I think they said, is like near Libya so northern African, uh, so he could have been easily identified as an outsider for the Romans and then kind of almost on a servant level for them at that point. So that's interesting too, that, that those traveling with Jesus are again the marginalized. And I think it's interesting that this whole time, and I was going to get into this with some of the crucifixion, that traveling with him, Jesus witnessing what's happening to him or at this point, just the women that have been supporting him. But their marginal position in society due to their gender is kind of allowing them to almost go under the radar and be there for him. I mean, the disciples, I assume, are all scattered because they think they're in danger. I mean, there's different reasons why. But one thing is is that I've read some commentaries where when they were arresting Jesus, they're supposed to arrest the disciples, too. but just this idea, so Simon plays into that too, of like the people that are on the margins almost have a little bit more freedom to play these parts. Uh Pilate is beholden, at least to himself, by his responsibility, by the fact that he has authority over this. And in that case, it's a it's a it's a damning moment for him. And that's why I see in uh Joseph of Arimathea, as we'll get later, uh, kind of a a counterpoint to that. But uh, that's interesting with Simon as being possibly his kind of class, the view of his class is why he's called on to do hard labor like that. Uh, And then that offers him kind of a place in in, in history uh, and, you know, sainthood in some cases. Interesting,
1: yeah. And there is some some interesting kind of like, Contrast between total darkness and then little lights breaking through. Like we see Jesus is beaten, then um, he has this moment where he's being helped by an unlikely person. And then, actually, later, um, when they offer Jesus um, the wine vinegar that I was reading was actually like a popular drink at the time. And actually, would have served as kind of like a morphine type elixir.
0: It was a a, a kind gesture.
1: Yeah, so that was actually a moment of help. Yeah, and so you do see there's these these a couple little moments of of trying to help in the midst of all the suffering. So yeah, we do see these kind of different reactions, and then the women contrasted by I have the Roman soldier. Oh. Can't He's going that. to the tattoos, I can't, people.
0: I can't uh, pull my sleeve up <laughs> far enough. Can we get shirt. a
1: zoom in? <laughs> I can't because
0: I got the cross, but I have the sponge up here oh. too, and the spear.
1: Very cool. If you
0: want a little bit of trivia. Oh,
1: he did zoom, but I don't know. Yeah,
0: I can't get I can't get the sleeve <laughs> up high enough. It's way up on the top of my arm. So what
1: what inspired the sponge? Well, I like
0: the image of the Lamb of God. Uh, yeah. And I took it from, uh, I think it's a church in England with this uh, design and my friend uh, kind of morphed it a little bit, but I, I liked uh, those symbols.
1: That's cool. Yeah. All right then. Okay, so that we covered Simon, um, then we move into talking about Golgotha the place of the skull very kind of uh, dark imagery that we're moving into Um, you know obviously symbolizing death I think you know crucifixion there's a note to be made about crucifixion just about how terrible of a thing this was Um, and how intentional it was that this was a public humiliation, and that um, you know, it was very inhumane to the point where it was actually outlawed, and Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. This was only for insurrectionists and people that were outcasts in society. Interestingly, you know, like the ro- there was some dispute about kind of what the robbers did on the right and the left of Jesus that would have put them on the cross with him because um, it just seems like such an atrocious, um, overly punitive response to whatever they were doing at the time. But we know that the Romans basically as conquerors and oppressors used this as a tool to remind people of their power and what happens to you if you come against them in any kind of, a, any, in any kind of way. Um, So it's just important to remember just the brunt force of that kind of oppressive, empirical um, force. As we go into the place of the skull, Um, and we talked about the wine mixed with myrrh for a little bit, he didn't take it, which I think is also fascinating. One of the thoughts there was that he didn't want to basically be anesthetized to any pain Um, Another thought is I guess sometimes if you do anesthetize the pain, it prolongs the crucifixion because the pain uh, actually speeds the death. So those were two ideas as far as kind of what was going on there. Did you pick up anything from that or pretty much just the same?
0: Yeah, pretty much the same. I mean, uh, to a certain degree, uh, I had some comments, some further comments on some of the stuff you preached on, but I don't know if you're going to get to that now. Just about some of the irony
1: of the kingship. Yeah, that was kind of where yeah, let, let me,
0: well, You keep going, and then I'll have some stuff.
1: No, I just mean, um, I was actually just going to say, you know, one of the things that I think was a product of this study and of doing, going through Mark the way that we did, was to really... Pick up something that really amplifies in the crucifixion story, which is this this idea of irony, and what is a you know what does that mean for Mark that he wants to use irony um, in order to teach us, and so I I tried to um, answer that question by talking about kingdom of God and being able to understand um, truth, and 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 then I I thought later about it as sort of like two people can see the same thing and see totally different things. Um, And so for one person, it could be irony and for the other, it could be truth. And I think how we intersect with God a lot of times seems to have that, like where there's people that are just with no irony, so sincere in their faith, and then with other people who just look at them as total fools and completely ironically and totally dismiss them as you know being less educated etc so I, i just find that interesting that that's really found here in the crucifixion moment in a way that seems to be amplified more than any other although it is leading up to this point certainly there your thoughts on irony as the literary man that you are part
0: of what we're seeing too is a specific type of irony that mark's using which is called dramatic irony uh so dramatic irony is when we the audience are aware of something that the people are not aware of so examples would be uh if you've read romeo and juliet uh i'll spoil it (laughs) i think it's okay to spoil shakespeare
1: i've seen the movie
0: yeah that's fine that works uh but uh romeo or juliet to avoid getting married to this guy she doesn't want to get married to and to find a way to run off with romeo she takes a poison that makes her look like she's dead uh and they so they put her in the tomb and they say she's not getting married and the, the plan is for romeo to go rescue her and take her away uh but he doesn't get the note that it was a fake death. So he gets there, finds her in the tomb, and thinks she's dead, Uh, for real. But, But she's actually, at that moment, starting to come out of it. And so you have all these lines from Romeo where he's going like, how even in death do you look so full of life? It's almost as if your cheeks are full of blood, like you aren't dead at all. How do you still look? So every time he does that, the audience is going, she's not dead, she's not dead. Uh, similarly, uh, in the uh, Greek play uh, *Oedipus the King*, Sophocles, uh, the whole audience knows when, at the start of the play that Sophocles has killed his father and married his mother. Sophocles doesn't know this. It was a chain of events that happened that you know he'd been separated from his parents when he was a baby and ended up doing this to fulfill the the prophecy of the oracle but he has lots of lines where he'll introduce his wife who's actually his mother and he'll say like oh this is jocasta my mother of my children and he won't know what he's saying but everybody's just going oh uh, <laughs> and so what you have here is you have moments where you have uh the robbers saying, or, or the people saying, you know, you said you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, rebuild it in three days, and we're reading it knowing he does do that. He's resurrected. Uh, or any of this stuff about the king of the Jews where we go, no, he is the king. We'll see it because we know how it ends. But then the other, but also we, the, sometimes... I, I like doing this especially with Peter, some of the people that end up kind of being redeemed just to understand how they, for them, it wasn't dramatic irony. They didn't know how the story ends up playing, but when we're reading it, we do. So there's some in, some interesting different perspective types of readings on the, uh, uh, on the story because of that, but I thought that was similar to some of the stuff you were talking about. That's cool. And it also highlights, I mean, the other irony is the people putting him to death, This is the larger irony, uh, more of a situational irony. The people putting him to death, you know, are his people, the people he came to be the Messiah for. And that's one thing I think Mark's been setting us up for, because he's done a really good job, and that's one thing I've noticed as we've been reading it, of really setting up the conflict between uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and Jesus and what he's doing. So we We get that really pushed in once they've completely uh not only abandoned him but you know persecuted and killed him, and we get the real bite of the irony of the fact that he sh- he's their messiah, and they're m- mocking him for not being the messiah when he actually is. so I no, think you're right to point out the power of that irony that uh, we're getting here
1: um, you know and uh what you're making me think of which who knows how much of a parallel there is, but even if you think about something like Breaking Bad, where it's like, you know, you meet Walter White, he's like a chemistry teacher, so a little down on his luck, a little depressed, um, but then he gets diagnosed with cancer, um, and eventually he just starts making bad choices to the point where, you know, at the end of it, he's some mega drug kingpin villain, uh, meth, meth dealer or whatever. And, and so you kind of see like, yeah, like the deterioration the, the of the character, you know, from from where they were to where they are as just being like, at this point, at the climactic um, indictment of, of who they are as a group of people that, you know, have given themselves completely over to marrying themselves to power and, and, um, Missing the Messiah and Barabbas is better than Jesus, right?
0: Yeah, and they've done it I mean if I understand some of the background you can you can inform me on this some a lot of it was that even these Pharisees and all these guys were really Against Roman occupation. Is that correct? Yeah, so the fact that they are at the end in league with the Romans, with Pilate here. I mean, it's a complete, uh, you know, uh, they've completely entangled themselves with the, the corrupt power of Rome by, by doing this. I mean, it shows a, a real warning against letting, taking your religion, letting it lose its connection to the kingdom and connecting it with, like you said before, the, the empire of man. Uh, and especially at the cost of uh you know what it 's all supposed to be about, so that 's another really you could call it a deterioration
1: yeah. in a series of negative choices that just descend them into the madness that they find themselves in versus I think you know we could just have a pure villain who um from the onset is is really toxic and you know is against Jesus, but really we see that. It's out of their reaction to Jesus' kingdom message that they fall into a series of choices that lead them to this horrible moment. Um, And and much has been made of that as far as, you know, Jesus was also Jewish. So I don't think it's like an indictment of Judaism. It's an indictment of this time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and the decisions that they made. Um, and the the disciples were also Jewish and carried the church on. so anyways, I think that's also important to note. <laughs> oh, of course no yeah. and that's uh, I wasn't saying you were saying that. But no, no many of have not. over history No, no, and yeah. it's
0: been a dangerous interpretation throughout history, obviously with horrible consequences. but it is, but it's a truer story to talk about the uh, you know the people in power and the danger that that, that comes with that and closing yourself off from uh, you know, what God wants to do by instead focusing on you, what you want to do, your own self-advancement or the advancement of your own agenda. Uh, and I think we've seen that because we've seen them confronted time and time again. And once again, I think this is true of many Christian churches that have power and money that when the cause of righteousness comes calling and it doesn't look like what they're doing, there's gonna be a separation there. And that seems to be what's going on here is that they, they have their agenda, uh, this group at the time, Jesus uh, is bringing the way of the kingdom and there, there's a separation.
1: And that's really an archetypical idea that's interesting to unpack, like the, how power makes you blind, right? And I think that that's definitely what's going on here when we're talking about dramatic irony and the things that you were saying which is that really what's being exposed i think i think what marks driving at the most is the ability to see you know jesus and what what's the the tra- great tragedy is everything they want is in front of them and they cannot see it because of their power blindness and and what is so Powerful about the storytelling is that it's being revealed in this this sort of dramatic way where we know What they're missing and so it gives us a way into the story as well, which is really a powerful kind of artistic um, Tool I think that's it's very cool. Uh, and to me, I wonder like did he make that? sort of choice you know, what they I mean like as part of a tradition probably did understand that as like a storytelling tradition that he incorporated into this way of telling the story, you know, because it's so clearly part of what he's doing with, with the narrative. And I mean, one of the big places, I forgot to bring this up in the sermon, but is with that Roman centurion, like you were saying, who also, you know, when he's watching this whole scene unfold, all of a sudden, you know, with the Temple Kurt rips open and we're cutting to all of these scenes and everything. But then there's just this centurion who cuts to and it just says, surely this man was the son of God. In the midst of the total agony and defeat. This you know, this
0: is him at his lowest right. when most people would be convinced that he was just a fake or some flash in the pan kind of
1: uh Right, and, you know, uh, and this line was in the mouths of demons and in yeah. the mouths of you know, all of these unlikely places. And now it's in the mouth of the centurion at the foot of the cross watching this horrific scene. And so the only way that that could be there, I think, is out of this sort of we get these flashes of truth in the midst of the most unlikely place, yeah. you know, um, which is really cool. I think, but we skipped a little bit to get there. I mean, one of the things that is always, I think, and we didn't, we talked about this a little last week with a crying out. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So that was cool. We covered last week, but I think it's um, a lot of interesting stuff there about what's going on.
0: What's your take on that? I mean, I don't want to throw you under the, or,
1: you know, Put you on the spot I don't know if i have a great take on because that, i man.
0: know the, the even because i remember i was the one that wrote about that yeah uh, and you know as of him prepared that's what he was really dreading when he was preparing for that in gethsemane is yeah. separation from right. god uh and really uh, it can mean a lot of things about what he's doing why have you forsaken me uh and it is a quote from scripture uh but, uh, yeah, I, I didn't even say that that's what's happening. I'm just saying that, you know, as a possibility. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you, it, it kind of gets into a little bit of what you think <laughs> is kind of cosmically or spiritually happening on that cross. Right. Uh, which
1: I know. Trans substitutionary atonement theory.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I know it's, I, I know that's, books are written about that, but also we're reading this as a narrative going, okay, well, what just happened there? Yeah. Is there a simple way? To describe it um, the, I mean I, not, not, I'm not asking for the authoritative
1: I can lay out two points of view yeah so one if I you're would comfortable say, doing that uh, is the transubstitutionary atonement theory which would be driving more towards understanding Jesus as a sacrificial lamb um, that gave up his life for our sins and that the wrath of God was satisfied through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and and this separation is an act of sacrificial love that came in, um, and so that's like a transubstitutionary atonement theory. I think you know a lot of people I respect say that that's one one uh, narrative lens that you can take, but there's more. Um, another one I would say, like Richard Rohr would add to the mix as a Franciscan, would just simply be to say that. If we, one of the things that we do a lot of times when we read scripture, um, especially at the beginning in Genesis, is to sort of read, start in, in chapter 3 when we tell the story. Which is to say, we start with um, the fall, sin, and we really like to amplify that, that aspect of things. Um, and then the transubstitutionary atonement comes as the corrective to the, the fall um, and, and the sin that entered the world and to, into the human heart that did generate a lot of evil and disaster and continues to. Um, but you know, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see that um, God created the earth and it was good. He created humans in, in his image. And so when the fall happens, um, and the, the, the negative consequences of the fall, um, there, there's a way of looking at the cross as Jesus uh, shearing in the suffering of humanity. So that's a different way of uh, understanding this moment because in this moment we see Jesus, uh, God's response to human suffering and sin is actually to join with that, that suffering in deepest, most cosmic level of that. And so it's actually a moment of great solidarity um, with the human pain and suffering. So those are, and, and I think there's other people that would say they like both of those, and so we can put them both in the mix. Uh, so that those are kind of two two ideas around what's happening on the cross.
0: I, and another thing that sometimes I think of too, and I'm not offering this as, uh, this is, what's going on on the cross but another another thing that seems to play into it is you know there's this uh focus from Jesus of like I have to go there like even when Peter seems to be like what are you talking about you don't have to he's get behind me Satan I this is where I'm destined to go uh and at the sake of uh being uh, irreverent I'll compare it to a uh uh one of my one of my favorite my favorite western of all time is high noon uh where oh my gosh it's so, I like it so much I've only seen it once but I was just blown away by it uh and you're going to have to, I'm going to keep talking while on my <laughs> phone you're i are looking up, up the 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 actor's name it's not
1: Clint Eastwood it's
0: not no it's older than that it's not Gary Cooper it's uh Forgive me, this is great for anyone listening to this right now. Uh, (laughs) It's, uh, oh, it is Gary Cooper, my bad. All right, so Gary Cooper is the sheriff who's getting married uh, to actually Grace Kelly. Uh, And uh, it's their wedding day. And uh, it also happens to be the day they find out that these three bandits that are like horrible guys are getting out of jail and they're coming for Gary Cooper, the sheriff. And so he has a choice. He can take off, because he was leaving with his new bride, that was the plan, or he can stay to face them down so that they'll never bother the town again. Uh, so he has this choice of like, it's that classic showdown, right? Uh, so he's got this classic showdown coming and of course he calls up a posse of guys and guess what they all do? They all abandon him, so it's just him, and then Grace Kelly helps a little bit, uh, fighting these guys. And so sometimes I see the crucifixion as this showdown, to a certain degree, with death itself. Because this is kind of, I was influenced in this view a bit with from N.T. Wright, where re, what, what, what a lot of this is in preparation for is for the introduction of the resurrection, is that Jesus is going to that cross to die so that he, and you can, you can add all that stuff in there. When he dies, he takes on the atonement and that's what allows him to conquer death, but he conquers death so that we no longer know death. We're we're able to get the gift of eternal life. So another thing that's happening on that cross is that defeat of death, uh, the necessary step, which is to die. Uh, and, uh, so that he can come and bring in what is really the institution of the kingdom, which is the resurrected life, which is what we're all heading towards, what the world is heading towards. So that's another thing that I thought about. And I wanted to talk about High Noon because it's really good.
1: <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, there's a lot going on there, too. I think that you could you could kind of um, add to that conversation, you know, about how actually we that is the way new life is generated into the world is actually through, especially even in psychological techniques, um, they discovered that, like let's say that you have a great fear of elevators. One of the things that um, they would do in order to teach you how to deal with that fear is actually break down um, action steps, small teeny tiny action steps of, Facing that fear so maybe the first day you just go to the building where the elevator is and then the next time um, You go stand and press the button and you go the next day and then the next day you see if you're willing to Actually take a step inside the elevator, you know And then you're willing to take press a button and then eventually you face your fear and you go into the elevator and basically You know that's a way of teaching how human beings deal with fear and the things that are scariest to us in this life because we live in this dual reality where in the one sense we do have the yes of God's creation and on the other sense we have the horrors of being human and we're trying to reconcile those, those two things and I think the way that those two things are reconciled is through us choosing to go through the suffering and face the suffering um, as it gives us whatever it would bring to us and realizing it's not what we thought it was and Jesus's point at the end is uns- he is unstoppable because they have done everything they possibly could do to him and he's still there on the other side of it not only that he took everything that was done to him and it actually be, made him a seed in the ground that was going to bring that cosmic reconciliation of all things, in, and that was the plan. Like, all of this is the plan, um, and it's God's will that it would be done. So there's a lot happening on the cross that you know, could be talked about endlessly and is and, and will forever be unpacked. And it doesn't even matter. I mean, in some ways, what's interesting about that is the cross as symbol is transcendent. So anybody who's really dismissive of Christianity, I think really needs to wrestle with why that symbol is so transcendent for human beings. So it kind of moves past like any kind of shallow interpretation of superstition and into like a really deep understanding of what the journey of being human is and how um, we respond to the difficulties that life inevitably throws at us. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, a, it's a profound symbol. And so people, I think, are attracted to it without even really understanding fully why they're attracted to it. But um, I would say that's, that's at least part of it. <laughs> I don't know if we could ever fill in everything that it means because it means more than I think we understand. And that's also fun about the story as we keep getting more insight into it. Um, any other cross thoughts?
0: Oh that was pretty good. I mean that was kind of tackling the whole thing.
1: I did want to read um yeah. my dad's um take on Mark 15 16 through 20.
0: This is the soldiers and mocking.
1: Yeah, him. it's a, it's talking about the mockery and um I thought it was interesting he raised the question, what is it in human nature that is capable of enjoying someone else's suffering? Jesus had been arrested, beaten and scourged. Now he faced a sentence of the most painful slow death imaginable. The soldiers called the whole company together and they mocked him. I read this and I find it hard to follow the command of my savior to love my enemy. I wanna fight, I I want this injustice to end and I want the cruel ones to be punished. I want retribution. My anger inevitably leads me to the place where they are at. I imagine these soldiers on judgment day facing the God whose son they tortured to death. I pray there is a hell worthy of their cruelty. Then in my mind's eye, I look upon the face of Jesus, and I remember he is the one who endured it for me. And in his most excruciating moment said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do yes, they can be forgiven too. I find that to be another really important thing to unpack about the cross, especially right now. Um, I was just reading a quote from Thomas Merton that was talking about how one of the things that Christians can scarily get in the habit of is going 70 times seven against their enemies because it feels so unjust like the this is Jesus experiencing injustice so if you have felt that in your life then you should feel a deep resonance with what's going on with Jesus here but it also begs the question what was Jesus response to this dramatic injustice and that's where I think we find kind of what your dad was pointing us to and continues to remind us is even here, there is this mo- there is a moment on the cross to understand that there is no way forward with just purely seven times seven, a righteous indignation towards those who are doing this injustice. The whole point is to bring them forward too and the whole desire of God's heart is for them to see something that they cannot see. And in fact, that irony reveals a tearing open of God's heart and a ripping open of, um, you know, everything that he cares about. And, and, and so you see the whole earth groan and cry out out of that feeling of total anguish at, on, on every level. You know, and so yeah, I, I do find that the fact that the world itself turned dark and the temple curtain ripped our ways of God, sort of divinely expressing this, this lament, you know, this cosmic lament at the deep, at the heart of it. And I think maybe that only when you get to that place of lament can an acceptance essentially of the pain could you even imagine a prayer where you're on your lips you would form some forgive them for they know not what they're doing as part of it so that's that that's that facing of the death in facing of the death you go through the pain you don't numb it out you don't whatever you don't distract you don't go somewhere else you go through it and then You find the tears, you find the travail, you find the lament, and there somehow, at the end of that, there's a prayer, even for those people that are still human, but are completely in the wrong and unjust, but he still loves them. (laughs) that That one will mess you up every time that Jesus still loves everyone. Everyone that you hate, Jesus loves, right? And so that should confront us. Everyone, you don't want to be around. He still wants to be around. And, and so his heart's just bigger than ours. And, and then the cross is, is a demonstration of that. He died for the people that annoy you, you know, <laughs> that he don't like. So cool stuff there as well. Thank you, Pops. Anything else or should we move to the burial?
0: Uh, we can move to the burial. Okay. So that was my part. Uh, you know, one thing that I, when I was reading some commentaries on it, uh, both, uh, I have two commentaries I tend to read, uh, one by Alan Cole and one by N.T. Wright, uh, and uh, one thing they both mentioned was just this this uh, moment of uh, almost calm that happens after, you know, I, I kind of use literary terms to say this is like the the falling action after the climax of the horror and sorrow of the crucifixion, we have this kind of, it's really kind of calmly written, uh, this moment of his burial. Uh, Very tender in a lot of ways, the handling of the body by Joseph of Arimathea. So there's almost, it's almost like you were talking about when you're talking about how even moments during the crucifixion, there's little moments of mercy. And here we have this almost this exhale after all of this as the body's placed in the tomb and there's something holy about this movement here Uh, and uh, in this little cleared space of calm we have uh, this character I shouldn't call him a character I'm always speaking literally this man, uh, Joseph of Arimathea come out of it Uh, and he was fascinating to me when I was preparing because this group that we have been that have been serving as the you know i think rightful villains of this entire book these religious leaders that are actively against christ that stir up the crowd to crucify him Uh, joseph of arimathea was in that group now he it does say in the book of uh i think luke when they talk about him that he actually was against their decision uh when jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin. So he was not only sympathetic, but he actually did like say, no, we shouldn't do that. but at the same time, he's part of that group. Uh, it, so it just it gave me to a certain degree hope, because I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not going to you know put the cards on the table completely, but there's groups in America right now where I get very angry with what they're doing. And, and I'm very hurt and I want them to stop and I think, that uh, what they're doing is harmful for other people, for the country, uh, and uh, no matter who you are listening to right now, you might feel that way uh, about a group. And I still do feel that there are, you know, I have definitely a way that I, I lean on a lot of this stuff, but at the same time, the belief that even amongst those groups, there's somebody that in the words of Mark, he says that uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. So throughout all of this, Joseph is still keeping his eyes on the kingdom. And that's one thing that I thought was big that the other religious leaders and also in the other books, uh, Nicodemus is with him. So he's another one too. And he has a bit more uh, uh, of a starring role in the bible this is the only part where joseph of arimathea shows up is in these burial sections but that no matter what side you're on politically what group you're affiliated with if you keep your eyes on the kingdom and the ethics of the kingdom that jesus describes God's saving grace will find you through all that. And so there's some message of redemption here for me that Joseph of Arimathea really uh, has this moment uh, to shine. One of uh, the, uh, uh, the commentators, Cole, talked about how like Esther, in the book of Esther, Joseph had been prepared for a time like this. Like he had been prepared for this moment. The tomb he puts Jesus in was supposed to be his tomb. Uh, and so it gives me hope for, you know, and it humbles me a bit in the face of my, you know, frustration and even anger at, at certain groups or or people uh, to remember this. And even this goes back to your, your what your thought about, you know, the people that annoy you, Jesus loves them too. But uh, I just have this feeling that, if you if you just say you know no matter what are all these talking points and the the sides i take on them i need to keep my eye on the the mercy and and love of the kingdom that jesus was uh building in joseph it says i read one thing the the way he prepares jesus's body so he takes jesus back and they're they're kind of rushing they're very tender but this is the sabbath and the sabbath is closing in on them and they have to get it done quickly uh but uh the way that they prepare him would show that they didn't believe that there was any resurrection coming. So even though he might not have gotten it fully, it's kind of this part of uh, what you were talking about, about seeing it fully. Although he might not have gotten it fully, he got the right part enough to take this role in the story of what happens to Jesus. Pilate made the wrong choice. And the blood's on his hands, no matter how much he washes them. But Joseph of Arimathea seems to have that this moment, and he joins into the flow of the kingdom instead of uh, standing in front of it. So I think that he's really a fascinating kind of cool figure here. Uh, and uh, then it just ends, and I thought N.T. Wright kind of said this beautifully. Uh, did I quote it? Yeah, I did, that uh, at the end of this chapter... Uh, Everything's at rest because now it is the Sabbath and everything must rest including the body of Jesus himself It's almost this moment cosmically Historically where everything rests for a moment and then we of course know what happens in the next chapter So it was an interesting little interlude. That's beautiful.
1: I think that should be our concluder. All right I'll pray God. Thank you for uh, this Bible study and Lord, uh, the cross and all of the beauty, and Lord, the, the truth that um, you did this for us, and so we thank you, Lord, that uh, for your cross um, that has saved us, um, that, that pours mercy out on us, um, even in this moment, even for th- today, Lord, that we, we just receive um, your goodness, um, and what you did there, and just put us in touch with how, how liberating that is for us as we move from this place, Lord, into your freedom. And, Lord, um, we, we just um, we come with a big thank you, um, even in the midst of our struggle, to say thank you, Lord, for all that you have done and given and endured for our sake. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen.